Randy, that round of applause was for you. <laughs> well, you know, I've got this thing on for sympathy points this morning, Adrian, so uh, I hope I'm going to get a little bit of that. That's the only reason you're wearing it, right? That's right. I thought long and hard about it. How can I get sympathy points? Well, good morning, everyone. This is Randy Madison. I'm Adrian Boykin, and uh, I'm so excited to introduce Randy to you as our interim executive pastor here at Carnegie Free. He started in the office this past Tuesday, and uh, I've known Randy for quite some time. We lost touch for some years, but back when I was a freshman at Hastings College, and I kind of fell on my face, needing to know the Lord, needing to understand grace for the very first time. I was already attending Randy's church at Hastings E Free Church and went to him and, and this man explained to me the concept of God's grace from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for the very first time. And it was in his office that I wept and probably on that day I actually became a Christian. So uh, Randy and I have some history and uh, he was pastor at Hastings E Free for 20 years and we've stayed in touch at different times and now he's with the Interim Pastor Ministries the past couple of years, the same uh, group that gave us uh, John Strubar and Dave Jenkins. And in the midst of our interim time here, um, looking at staffing needs and Pastor Kevin stepping away, uh, we decided to go uh, with uh, an, an interim position for executive pastor position, a really, really critical position at the church. And through much prayer and a number of conversations, God was incredibly generous to provide us with Randy Madison. So I wonder, Randy, would you share with us a little bit about your uh, church background, just in a minute or two, uh, where you have served as lead pastor before coming here as executive pastor? All right. Well, uh, obviously, you just covered the Hastings piece. And I'm just curious, how many people here this morning have had some kind of connection with Hastings over the years? I'm just curious. Could I see your hands? Several people have either been through Hastings or maybe lived in Hastings, uh, pastored there for 20 years, and uh, that was a great season of ministry. Prior to that, uh, we were in Oklahoma City, uh, Kansas City, and then as you just mentioned, we've been with IPM up in Upper State New York for uh, the last couple of years, give or take. Great, great. Well, um, what makes you excited, you and Elizabeth, excited about coming here to Carney E. Free? Elizabeth can't be on stage with us right now. We wish she could. She is such a delightful woman. <laughs> yeah. But why are you guys excited about coming to Carnegie Free at this time? Well, uh, first of all, I'm excited because my wife decided to come with me. Uh, <laughs> honey, would you stand up for just a moment? You're over there on the side just so you can see how beautiful she is. <laughs> she runs circles around me. But as I was reflecting on that, and they've got backfill in their bulletin this morning, uh, the first thing that came to my mind, Adrian, is you. I'm excited to be here to be with uh, you. Uh, if John Doshmo or uh, Frank Jones or Bill Smith had emailed me or called me, I probably wouldn't be standing up here today. But I've got such warm memories of you as a basketball player there at Hastings College before you blew out your knee. And uh, we... <laughs> had the opportunity to have you in our home some when you were there. And uh, just such warm memories. And now to see what God is doing with you and with this church and with this ministry and the, the abilities he's given you, uh, your, your preaching, your leading. 
I'm just uh, grateful to be able to serve the Lord and to work for you and the elder board and, and to be here. Mm. I'm also excited about the vision of this church. It's all about the great commandment and the great commission, uh, building a transformational community of people that are growing deeper in love with Christ and all people. Uh, every person matters. I mean, that is the great commandment. That's the, that's the great commission. And so I'm excited about it. And uh, your five-year strategic plan from uh, busyness to spiritual depth and from Sunday to every day, I mean, that's the Christian life. And then relationships is a third thing that comes to my mind this morning. I got to meet the staff this last week. Um, know some better than others right now, but uh, you've really got a good thing going here. I, I can just tell that. Uh, unity, energy, synergy, mm. uh, and it's just neat to be a part of that. I had the opportunity to meet Claire this morning for the first time. Had previously met Scott, uh, the head of your elder board. Tom Shields, um, just a great team. And so I'm looking forward to being a part of that. Mm. And then my last thought this morning is coasting. Well, what does that mean? You just finished a series in Hebrews about a month or two ago. Mm -hmm. And I remember three years ago preaching through Hebrews 11 and coming to the story of Abraham who left his hometown at 75. I'm not quite there yet. But he stepped out in faith, and I, the sermon that day, I think, was more for me than the people that listened. And Elizabeth and I stepped out in faith. Things were really comfortable. That was the toughest decision of my life, to leave Hastings, or one of the most difficult. But we went to New York. Here we are today, and I don't want to coast. I want to run through the tape, not just to it, all the way to the end. And this is an opportunity to do this, to do something different. So I'm excited. Thank you for having me. That's a good word. <laughs> but let's, let, let's pray for, uh, that is such a good word. Thank you, brother. I'm just going to close in prayer and we'll go home, okay? Because that's, that, that's plenty of good word for this morning. Let, let's pray for, for Randy and Elizabeth. And uh, as we do, I want to take just a moment and pray for our nation as well. After all that's happened this past week, would you please join me? Father, thank you for Pastor Randy. Thank you for his influence in my life and the lives of, of thousands of people down in Hastings and in New York and Oklahoma City and Kansas City. Thank you, Lord, for your call in his life over all these years and the way he has thoughtfully gone about his calling to pursue one priority in life, and that's Christ. Thank you for Elizabeth, beautiful woman of hospitality and kindness and, and generosity, a great minister of the gospel in her own right. And I ask, God, that you bless this time that we share with Randy and Elizabeth over these next months, this next year, well, whatever you give us together. We, we trust in you with it, Lord, and uh, we're, we're so, so grateful for Randy, and we look forward to bonding together as a team more and more. Would you anoint his ministry? Would you anoint his preaching here? Would you anoint his ministry with our staff and his leadership in various areas? We're very, very grateful for Randy and Elizabeth, and pray your blessings on them today and in these months to come. And now, Father, we do pray for our nation. It's been a very difficult week. It's been a very difficult month. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Puerto Rico, many of whom are still without power. Weeks later, many whom have not found loved ones who have been lost. We pray, God, that they would get reconnected with those loved ones. We pray that power would come back to these American citizens who are struggling so dearly. 
And we ask for those who continue to grieve over this wicked, horrendous act in Las Vegas. We simply name that for what it is. It's incredible, extraordinary sin. And we ask, God, that you would come and help those who are grieving right now. You would provide recovery to those who are still injured and hospitalized. You would bring help to those families that are grieving the loss of loved ones in a way that only you can do. The scriptures tell us that you give grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So would you provide that for those who have suffered such grief this past week? Now, God, would you turn our hearts, would you turn our nation towards you? We pray for our leaders. We ask for President Trump. We ask for uh, Governor Ricketts. We, we ask for all of our congressmen and congresswomen. We, we ask, Lord, that you grant them exceeding wisdom for this incredibly difficult day that we live in. Please help our leaders. Now, Lord, as we open up the scriptures, would you turn our hearts towards you? We ask in the name of Christ that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, it was an incredibly difficult week as we processed what happened in Las Vegas. I'm not going to preach on that particularly today. However, what we will speak on today does relate to it. And uh, it's been big enough on my mind that we're going to shoot a little video tomorrow and we'll post that online, just some reflections on this and reflections on uh, the gnawing question that never goes away on the problem of evil. <laughs> we can't really ever stop talking about that because it's part and parcel of the world that we live in. So more on that tomorrow. We'll get that up online soon. These past four weeks, we've been uh, speaking through a series called Discipleship in the Digital Age. And just to review very quickly, we've talked about our need to reboot in the ways that we use technology, the need to repent at times for being dominated by technology, the need to reprioritize what are our main things. How are we going to prioritize our lives? And how does our current climate, our current age, sometimes prevent us from prioritizing what is most important? Last week, Tim Stratton did a fantastic job, didn't he? Didn't he do a great, great job last week talking about the need for redeeming technology and that anything that God has given us, we are secondary creators underneath his ultimate creation, we can redeem it. And there are wonderful redemptive aspects of technology, and I seek to use technology in a redemptive way as well. have to be careful that it doesn't use me. Today, we're going to talk about another R word. You hear the theme in this? We need to learn to relax. Can I get an amen? We need to learn to relax. <laughs> because we live in a day that aggressively stimulates anger. Isn't that so? We live in a day that aggressively stimulates anger. I used to tire of reading the daily newspaper, the local newspaper, because by the time I got to page six or seven, I would feel this anger or this anxiety welling up in my belly. But I gotta tell you, compared to the news feed 
on my phone each morning, or the talking heads on cable television. That old-fashioned local newspaper feels like a motivational novel now. I mean, it really does. That's why I still enjoy reading it. I've really kind of gone back to that. And we're so fortunate in this town that we have a newspaper and news stations that report on some positive stories. I'm blessed with uh, some of the most conservative family and friends that one could have. And also with some of the most liberal family and friends that one could have. And it's interesting, I've noticed that as I've interacted with them, and as I've seen their causes online, at least some of them in each of these camps, some of them, not all, engage in many of the contemporary issues that we're facing online. And the issues that they engage in are very different. But the ways they engage in those issues are almost identical. They're very much the same, the ways they engage. Twitter for tirades. Facebook for fighting. Memes for mocking other people. People today are bold with keyboard courage, aren't they? I I mean, folks will say today, behind a TV screen, behind a rectangular screen, what they would never say to someone's face. Have you ever read one of those online message boards about your local doctor's office? Or a restaurant, or a school, or even a church? You ever read one of those? Raise your hand if you have. Did you feel like taking a shower afterwards? I mean, they're just full of vitriol. I was reading uh, an article about a football player, Eddie Lacy, a couple weeks ago. And Eddie Lacy has been the subject of many message boards and many Twitter tirades. And he was reflecting on this fact. He used to play for the Green Bay Packers. My son is a huge Green Bay Packers fan. And uh, now he plays for the Seattle Seahawks. Boo, Seahawks. But that aside, he plays for the Seattle Seahawks. And he's reflecting in this article about how his weight has become this public joke for people to laugh at for the past four years. Apparently, he's had some difficulty maintaining weight that has been required of him to play running back for the two different teams that he's played for. And as he's reflecting on that in this article, uh, he said this. I could pull up my Twitter account right now, and there would be a fat comment in there somewhere, he says. Like, I could tweet, today's a beautiful day, and someone would be like, oh yeah, you fat. I sit there and I wonder, what do you get out of that? When the internet turns one of your most personal flaws into a meme, how do you possibly escape it? Friends, we live in this day that aggressively stimulates anger. A couple months ago, our staff and our leadership teams across the board here at our church went to a wonderful uh, conference called the Global Leadership Summit. I've already mentioned it, well, once or twice in this room since then. It was very, very impactful. But the opening address was provided by this pastor named Bill Hybels from Willow Creek Community Church outside of Chicago. And he, uh, he hosts this Global Leadership Summit, and each year he provides the opening keynote address. And so each year he gets emails from thousands of people around the world encouraging him to speak on this. Speak on this topic. And he said from people all over the world, not just the United States, but countries all over the world, people 
predominantly said, Bill Hybels, would you speak on this one topic this year? Civility. Not just in the United States, across the world. He said, would you speak to the issue of incivility that has grown so drastically in our culture? And he spoke on that, and he noted that some companies have had to develop workplace civility codes to teach their people how to interact with one another, yet again, in a basic civil manner. And these workplace civility codes will include things like, say hello in the hallway. I'm not kidding. Say please and thank you to your administrative assistant. Treat each other with basic respect and equality. It's so sad that things like that would have to be said. And yet today, they do. I am convinced that God in heaven inspired King Solomon of Israel to write Proverbs 15.1 some 3,000 years ago for such a time as this. Proverbs 15.1 is profound. I'm going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to ask you, both here in the auditorium and in the venue, would you please read this out loud with me? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Ooh, that's so good. And we've all experienced both sides of this, both of these phrases, that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word just has this way, a condescending word, a sarcastic comment, an insulting word has this way of stimulating strife, spurring up more and more anger between people. We've all experienced this, be it in our online relationships that I've already referred to, or our most intimate relationships with our spouses, with our family members, with people in the neighborhood, with people in the workplace, we've all experienced this proverb. Now, the nature of Proverbs is that they are generalities. If you read the book of Proverbs as if they are ironclad promises, that they will always happen this way, you'll be sorely disappointed. It's not always the case that a gentle answer will turn away wrath. Isn't that right? There are times that it won't go down like that. But what Solomon is saying is that generally, if you trade insult for insult, the embers of the flame, the embers of the fire, will spark back up into a flame once again. And generally speaking, if you trade blessing for insult, someone else gives you an insult, but you give them blessing instead, then those embers will die down into old ashes. Now, what's the typical thing to do when we get criticized? Anyone? Fight back, right? That's the typical thing. That's the most natural thing for all of us to do. And that's what we've been trained to do. That's what we all naturally will do outside of Christ. Someone criticizes us, we criticize back. Someone insults us, porcupine needles go up, get defensive, and hit somebody. Say something back to them. If not to their face, then at least when they turn their back. That's the most natural, that's the most typical thing for us to do. And as usual, Jesus provides an alternative to the typical way of relating, the typical way of dealing with an insult or with conflict or with pride. I encourage you to read Luke chapter 9 later on today. 
We're not going to go into it in depth right now, but I do want to bring a couple episodes from Luke 9 out this morning. Because in that chapter, in that great chapter, two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, are arguing with one another. If you remember, they're on a road, and Jesus is maybe 25, 30 yards ahead of them, and they're arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Who's the baddest? Who's the bestest? Who gets to be at Jesus' right hand in his kingdom? They're saying, it's going to be me, John. No, it's going to be me, James, and this is why. It's this one-upsmanship that turns into anger and pride and great disagreements. And Jesus knows what's in their hearts. And if you remember what Jesus does in this moment, it's just brilliant. He doesn't even rebuke them. What he does, even though he sees this ugliness in their hearts, is he's walking along the road and he finds an object lesson by way of a seven-year-old boy. And I imagine him bringing this seven-year-old boy to him and putting his hand on that boy's head or on his shoulder. And he says this in Luke 9, 48. James and John, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is actually the greatest. You see, the way to greatness, Jesus says, is not tit for tat, insult for insult. Let me show you how much better I am than you. The way to greatness, Jesus says, is going lower. It's gentleness. It's humility. Now, I know there are some parents in the room that say, well, my kid don't do that. And I know. I'm a parent, too. But one of the great things that kids can teach us is we need to receive We need to be humble receivers, not looking for this game of one-upsmanship, which is so related to pride and so related to anger. Then just a few verses later, when Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem, uh, he decides he's going to walk kind of southwest through the region called Samaria, Um, from Galilee, through the region of Samaria, down to Jerusalem. He decides it's his time to go to Jerusalem. And he can make a straight shot. He doesn't have to go through Samaria. But Jesus had to go through Samaria because every person matters. And so he, he decided to go to the west through Samaria on the way down to Jerusalem because there's this age old tension for centuries, this ethnic tension, not unlike the ethnic tension that we experience today. That's going on between Jews and Samaritans. You see, Samaritans had intermarried several centuries ago. They were Jewish people that during the exile had intermarried with their Assyrian captors and they become their own ethnicity, Samaritans. And because they intermarried, there was this age-old tension between them and the Jews. They didn't like the Jews and the Jews didn't like them. So Jesus decides to go through Samaria and his disciples goes on ahead and they, they're asking Samaritans, can, can he stay in your town? Can he stay in your town? Can he spend the night here? Could he come here and get a cold cup of water in this place? And across the board, they're, they're saying, no, no, you can't come to this town because, because you're a Jew and we're Samaritans and we don't like each other. And so there's this, this anger in them. They want nothing to do with him. And the disciples, again, the same disciples, James and John, they have something to say about that. These same arguing disciples, you go on to Luke 9.54, it says this. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and go ahead and destroy those nasty Samaritans? 
I mean, isn't it great? He just said to them a few verses ago, be like this sweet little seven-year-old boy. We're going to call down fire on them and destroy them. And Jesus, if you don't do it, if God doesn't do it, we're just going to take vengeance into our own hands. And what does Jesus say there? As you continue to read later on today in Luke 9, he corrects them, and then he says, that's not how we do it. He says, let's go to another town. I'm rejected. That's quite all right. We don't trade insult for insult. We don't exchange wrath for their wrath. Let's just go to another town. Relax. Have the courage to relax. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes even further on this. Matthew 5.22 says, I will tell you, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, why such intense words fall from Jesus here on us calling another person a fool? Well, why is that such a big deal to him? Well, we do much worse than that today, don't we? We do, we do way worse than that. Come on. Why is this so dangerous? Because, number one, when we use words like that for other people, we are defaming someone who is made in the image of God and can only be judged by God. That's the first reason. The second reason is it's not helpful. <laughs> it's just not helpful. You call someone a fool and they call you a fool. You insult someone, they're going to insult you back. What if, imagine with me, what if Christians were the people that led the way by never using this kind of language on someone? What if Christians were the kind of people who never use this kind of language on someone they don't like online? What if Christians were amongst the people who led the way, who never used this kind of language against a political figure that you like or don't like, Democrat or Republican, that we just didn't do that. We said we speak in a different way, online and in person. Jesus calls us to a different standard. Jesus simply embodied this verse. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Hear me now. Just about anything that we can do with anger can be done better without anger. Just about anything that we can do with anger can be done much better without it. Now, I know some people would object to this, but, you know, Paul said, in your anger, don't sin, so therefore we can have anger, and, and Jesus was angry at times. Let me tell you, Jesus' anger was always under control. He was always under control in his anger, and his anger was always governed by a greater value called love. He had love for those that he was angry with. He was calling them to something bigger and better. And there is a place, there is a time for us to experience a kind of righteous indignation, a righteous anger against what we saw in Las Vegas last week. That's right for us to be angry about that. But Paul says, in your anger do not sin. And then he goes on in the very next verse to say, deal with your anger before you go to bed. 
deal with it so quickly. And why does he say that? Because he says, if you don't, it will get a foothold in your life. The enemy can come into our lives by way of bitterness, resentment, grudge-keeping, wrath, and the like, and get a foothold in our bellies, get a foothold in our shoulders, get a foothold in our mind by way of headaches. Deal with your anger quickly, therefore, Paul says, lest the enemy of our souls get a foothold where we live. Again, there might be a few contexts where we can do something a little bit better with anger than without anger. Maybe boxing. I'm not sure. But I haven't seen those contexts personally. Let me share with you uh, one way that I have lived out this proverb, Proverbs 15:1, for better, and another way that I've lived it out for worse, if I may. Stay with me here, okay? Stay with me in the venue. Back when I was 18, as a senior in high school, my closest three friends were African Americans. And there was a group of kids at my high school, Broomfield High School, just north of Denver, who were juniors, four or five kids, who rode around town with Confederate flags all over the place, including on their fenders. And they would stare down the African Americans in the school and say words that should never be said to anyone. And so we would stare back at them. And the temperature would get hotter in the hallways as we saw each other. Until one day I got so sick of it for my friends that I decided to take justice into my own hands. And on my study hall break, I went out into the parking lot and I looked around to see if anyone was watching me and I found a fender that had a Confederate flag on it, and I yanked the fender, I yanked the Confederate flag off that fender. And then I took it, and I folded it in two pieces, and I stuffed it down in the trash can with these monstrous muscles that you see on stage here. <laughs> Looked around again to see if anyone had noticed. I figured it was a done deal. But apparently it wasn't. Because the next day, Four of these juniors, who were known racists, approached me in the hallway with that license plate in hand. And someone had saw me, I'm not sure who, but they got that license plate out of the trash can and they brought it to me, and they were not too happy. And I responded with more harsh words to their harsh words, and it didn't go too well for me. Fast forward to August 2017, Charlottesville, Virginia, white supremacy protests, Antifa counter-protests, I, like you, was sick to my stomach by it all. A few days later, I started going by this corner out here off 2nd Avenue and 39th Street, and I saw what many of you saw. Maybe you haven't even noticed it, I don't know, but, but there was a gentleman who t- took up shop and was selling kites. In addition to selling kites, he was flying a Confederate flag off of his RV. And I, I, I just, there's something you got to know about me. I've always hated racism. It just doesn't make any sense to me that certain people would look down at other people because they have more or less melanin in their skin. It just seemed ridiculous. Even before I was a Christian, it never made any sense to me. 
And so I, I started to get irritated by it as I drove by this repeatedly. And, and eventually I, I felt like I heard God saying, Adrian, it's your, it's your responsibility to stop and say something. I am calling you to stop and say something. And so I continued to do so for a couple more days before I listened to the Lord until finally I was at a, a meeting on the other side of town and I paused at the end of this meeting and was going to go to the YMCA and go get a workout, but I came to 2nd and 39th Street and there I saw that Confederate flag blowing in the wind and my heart started racing. And I realized I needed to stop. I needed to listen to the Lord. I couldn't, I couldn't ignore that any longer. I needed to stop. And so I pulled into this parking lot and my heart started racing a little bit more as I pulled in. And I stopped and I prayed for two or three minutes. And I said, God, I, I surrender myself to you. I think that you have called me to do this. I bathe this in prayer. I could say something that I later regret. God, would you please help me? And I give you this conviction. I worship you, God. I know I'm just a man and I could do something stupid here. Moreover, I might get rejected in this moment. I might get hit in this moment. I don't know what to expect, but you've called me to do this. And so I'm going to go do it. And after three or four minutes of sitting in the car, I got out and well, went and talked to this gentleman, and I introduced myself to him. We exchanged cordialities and asked him his name. He told me his name was Tony. We had a nice little conversation. I said, Tony, you seem like a nice man. Can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, can you tell me why you're flying that Confederate flag off the back of your, your RV? He said, it's, it's part of our history. It's part of our history, Adrian. I said, granted, it is. It is part of our history. But can I tell you what it means to my brown wife, my Indian wife? Can I tell you what it says to my two brown sons who take after their beautiful mother? It says, you are worth less than me. Can I tell you what it says to African Americans who drive by this street and see it flapping in the wind? It, it, it says, you're worth less than I am. He said, well, that's not what it means to me. I, for me, it's just part of history. And I, I said, granted, I understand it's part of history, but you've got to understand that that was a symbol of certain people owning other people in our culture for a long, long time. And not only of owning other people, but those other people were only worth three-fifths of a person. And so the perception to them is that they are worthless to you, and they may not be welcome here. And I don't know about you, Tony. I want to have a community where everyone knows that they're, they're equally valid, that they're equally worth, worthy. And he says, I, I believe the same thing. I think everyone is worth the same. He said, great, we're on the same page here, Tony. Everyone is equally made in the image of God. Everyone's worth the same. Can, can I just ask you, would you consider taking this down? Because even if you don't intend it this way, the perception is something different than you have intended to many people who drive by this corner every day. And Tony looked me in the eyes, and I will never forget what he said. He looked me in the eyes and he said, Adrian, people drive by this corner all the time, and they cuss at me, they yell at me, they flip me off. You're the very first person who's ever stopped to talk to me about it. And he said, because you stopped to talk to me about it, because you listened to me and then explained yourself. I'm gonna go over there and take that flag down. <laughs> and then I didn't know what to say. So here's this preacher starting to stutter. And so I hugged him. I put my arms around him and I started to cry. 
I said, Tony, thank you. Thank you for being willing to have this conversation. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you, God, for listening to us. Thank you for this civil conversation around a difficult issue in our culture today. Thank you, Tony. And then Tony went and took down that flag, and I happily went and bought a kite that I did not need. <laughs> and I came back with that kite, and I said, Tony, tell me a little bit more of your story. How'd you get in this business? Tell me a bit about your business. And he said, I didn't want to do this. I was in construction, but my shoulder kept falling out of place, and my doctor told me that I had to stop doing what I was doing, or else I would lose my arm. So I started this business. I said, how's it going for you? He says, it's up and down. Tony, can I pray for your business? And so here we are in the corner of 2nd and 39th, perhaps the busiest intersection in town, arm in arm, praying over his business in the name of Jesus. Now, friends, I don't tell you that story because I'm special. I tell you that story because God is special. I tell you that story because when we bathe our convictions in prayer, when we're willing to listen to the greatness of God and do what he says to do, regardless of any rejection that we might feel from others, he's able to do abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or imagine. When we follow his way, which is different than our way, which is gentleness, that is able to turn away wrath, he is able to do incredible things. Allow me to give you one more verse here related to this. I've talked to it before. It's 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. Yet do this with two words. How do we do it? Anyone? Gentleness and respect. I heard him yell it out from the venue. Gentleness and respect is the how we do it. And the reason that my conversation with those high school guys went nowhere before I was a Christian, is because I was wrong. My convictions might have been right, but the way I did it was absolutely wrong, and so it went nowhere, because a harsh answer just brings up more harsh answers. And increasingly, in our postmodern world, we got to understand that in our postmodern world, people are begging for how we say things. How we say it is every bit as important as what we say as Christians. Let me say that again. How you say your convictions is as important as whatever your convictions are. Whatever it is you say, the content of what you say, how you do it is every bit as important. Now, we have all kinds of issues in our families, all kinds of issues in our country, all kinds of issues in our world, and I don't know the answers to many of them, just like you don't. We should admit that. Many times we don't know the issue, many times we don't know the answers to the difficult issues though that we face, but we do know how Jesus would have us respond. We do know that. We sometimes don't know what to say, but the world is begging for the church to show how do we respond. We love. We listen. We seek to understand another before asking them to understand us. And then given an opportunity, we answer with gentleness and respect. There's a woman in this church, I, I saw her Facebook page a couple weeks ago, Facebook note a couple weeks ago, and she did this so brilliantly. There's a protest going on, one of many, many, many protests going on. And uh, she, she said, can someone please explain to me what is the reason for this protest and for that protest? I'm not criticizing either. I'm just trying to understand. Can someone please explain it to me? 
And then she listened. She didn't have answer, she didn't provide any answers, she just listened to both sides. And I was like, wow, that's kind of unique. If you do that, you're gonna have such a platform to speak when God provides the opportunity. Allow me to suggest one proactive spiritual discipline to help prevent anger from boiling in the belly. It is not try harder to be self-controlled. It's not try harder to think about how nice those people are on Facebook who are yelling at you. Guess what? They're not that nice. They're not that nice. And they're going to keep on yelling. It's not that. The spiritual discipline that we need to follow is kind of an off-the-spot training It's worship. As we worship our God in spirit and in truth, we gain more self-control ourselves. As we worship our God for who he is, our anger reduces. And then we're able to have the difficult conversations that we have, that we need to have. Worship is simply offering all of myself for all of God's glory. All of me for your glory, Lord God. So we've been talking about the spiritual disciplines each and every week. All a spiritual discipline is, is a spiritual practice, some activity within our power to do, which by repeated effort puts us in the stream of God's grace and enables us to become more like Christ, enables us to become more like what we cannot do on our own. And as we worship on a day-in and day-out basis, we become more self-controlled people. As we worship God each day, we become less angry people. We have greater control over our tongue. Because in worship, what we are doing is prostrating ourselves before the living God. Indeed, that's what the Hebrew word worship means, to prostrate. It's to bless, it's to kneel down. All of me for all of your glory, Lord God, as a plumber, as a farmer, as a businesswoman, as an engineer, as a pastor, as a father, as a mother, whatever God's called you to. I worship you today, God. I give myself to you today, God. You are mine and I am yours and I ask that your will would be done in my life and may my life be a pleasing offering to you. And this beautiful thing happens when we worship. We're humbled. Isn't that the case, friends? When we worship, we fall to our knees. We recognize that God is great, and we are not. We fall to our knees, we are humbled, and once humbled, we can see other people, even those that we don't like, is also made in the image of God. And once we see them that way, we can engage in the very difficult conversations that we all have to have from time to time. The way there is not try harder. Try harder can only manage the exterior. Try harder can do nothing for the heart. The way to a gentle answer is worship. As Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Allow me to suggest that out of the overflow of a worshiping heart, the mouth will speak differently. So, how are we cultivating a life of worship? Are we spending 10 minutes each morning opening up the Gospels and saying, God, would you speak to me through these Gospels? Would you teach me through Jesus? 
Would you help me to see myself? I repent to you. I ask you to reign in my life. Perhaps with an old hymnal. Perhaps with some contemporary worship song that you, that you love. You sing out of that. Sometimes that just leads into a prayerful sense of worship. Sometimes it's at the end of the day. When you fall to your knees at the end of the day and you say, Oh, this wasn't the perfect day, but God, you gave me breath. And so I worship you. God, this wasn't the perfect day, but God, you've given me my family. You've given me my friends. You've given me my job. And so I, I worship you. Sometimes it's looking over one of the cornfields. Truly, they're beautiful. Looking over a lake. Looking at the sky. And having this sense of awe come into your soul and just sitting on that for a few moments. As we worship the God who is good and beautiful and just and powerful, we see ourselves as we are. We are humbled and we see others as they are. And then perhaps by God's grace, we can give a gentle answer that turns away wrath. Your God, your God is that good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that as you call us to the difficult things in our lives this week, you call us not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. You invite us not to try a little harder to be better people. You invite us not just to control our tongue by our own best efforts. You invite us to worship. And so we simply declare, Lord, that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's out of the overflow of the heart that we post on Twitter and Facebook and all the rest. Father, dignity has been drained out of us in so many ways by the contemporary toxic nature of our culture that is ripe with anger. Many of us have been treated like dirt and it's stuck to us. Harsh answers stick to us. So, Father, I ask that you would please touch every person in this room and in the venue with the truth of your word and how valuable they are to you. And out of a recognition of what you say about each and every one of us, you grant us a newfound capacity to speak and act and think in a way that is different, that is countercultural for the good of our families and our neighborhoods and our communities, our nation and even our world, till all the world knows that Jesus Christ is Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.